0: We've been answering these questions that uh, you actually, people from our church family, gave us a number of months ago, and we filtered through them, and we put them in different categories, and I I was just encouraged. We had so many questions. It shows a curiosity about uh, the church, about spiritual things, and I think it's just appropriate for us to be curious about those things. Some people grow up in families where they don't talk about religion or politics, but in the church, we want to encourage talking about these things and having questions about them. And, and it's, it would be natural, I think, for us to have curiosities about the spirit world. We can't see it. So it creates a number of questions. And last week, Doug came and talked about the questions we had on prayer and how does prayer work. And we've talked about questions about the Bible and about the afterlife and, and the church in general and our church specific and all of these categories, and I call it somewhat of a godly curiosity, I think it's part that we're made in the image of God, and there's a part of us still that God encourages to hunger for what's good and right and true, and so in seeking things, in trying to learn, there's we should always have the position of wanting to learn more and more and more, and so pursuing questions that we have. And one category of questions that we got was a category that excited me the most, because I think it's a curiosity about the most important topic that we could ever look into, and that is the nature of God and what is God like. And we had a group of questions uh, that people asked about God. And I can't think of any better topic to think about. One theologian said the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. And so we're all trying to shape our image of God and what he's like. And we've been taught different things as we're growing up, but we want to get closer and closer to what God is really like and what he's truly and to know him is to be set free by him, the Bible says. And so I want to deal with these questions about the nature of God. And the first one is just a basic overviewing question and I think I understand why the question is asked. The question is, what attributes does God have other than love? So often in, in, in our church, we emphasize the love of God. And many churches emphasize the love of God. And we love the idea of love and inclusive love in our culture. And, and maybe the, even the definition of love has been bannered around so much that there's kind of a junior high type of love. And there's a puppy love. And there's we can love this. And we love that restaurant. And we love. And so the whole idea of what, what does it mean that God is love and then the question is, since we emphasize so much about God's love, what other attributes does he have? And before I you know, look at that a little bit, I want to suggest to you that we emphasize the love of God for a reason. We have uh, four things we want for people in our church family. We'll, we're going to talk about that at our Vision Sunday coming up this fall. Number one on the list, we want people in our church family, in the community... To learn about God's love, to come to know, even experience, and even learn to walk in the love of God. Because there's nothing else like it in all of creation. The Bible says the love of God surpasses all knowledge, which means you can't even get your brain around it. To really know the love of God, you have to experience it in your heart and your spirit. We know He loves us because He's demonstrated His love for us. And while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die in our place. The Bible says in 1 John 4, God is love. A part of how we know what God is like is through what He's revealed about Himself to us in His Word. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him when you start to move and experience the love of God, it changes your life in a way nothing else in all of creation can. There are parts of us deep in our soul, in our spirit, that can only be touched and healed by the love of God. The tragedy of humanity is that we were created to be in fellowship, in a loving relationship with God. But we turned away from Him. We fell into what, the, what we refer to as sin, the Bible calls sin, where we no longer hit the mark of what God intended for us in a relationship with Him. But He is reaching out to us in His love, calling us back to Himself so we could again taste and see of His goodness and begin to walk in the assurance and the security of knowing we're His He created us. We're the sheep of His pasture and nothing can snatch us out of His hand. My sheep hear my voice, He says. They know me. They listen to me. No one can take them from me. Paul wrote this. He became convinced that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Nothing. Height, death, angels, demons, living, dying. He was secure in that love. And that changes a person. In a way, nothing else can change them, knowing his love. And so that's the first thing we want for people. But then if you're secure in his love and you want to know more and you have that freedom and you say, what is God like and you're willing to seek it out, what other characteristics does he have? The Bible says many of them should be obvious to us. Romans chapter 1, 20 says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that human beings, men and women, are without excuse for knowing that He's there and that some of His nature, what it's like. The prophet Isaiah, was, when he was called to be a prophet for God, was caught up and had a vision of the Lord. And he echoed this same sentiment way back in the Old Testament. He was caught up and he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, the Bible says. And then Isaiah says this, Above him were seraphs, angel-like creatures, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces for the radiance of God. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, and here's what they were calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then they echo what we read in Romans. The whole earth, all of creation, is filled with His glory. It radiates back to him a little bit of who he is. And so if we look into his word, we look at creation around us, we look at ourselves as a part of his creation, we can start to grasp a little bit of what God is like. Clearly we see in his word, as Isaiah said, God is holy. He's set apart. That word means set apart. There's nothing else like him. Totally unique in and of himself. He's holy he 's just the Bible tells us everything he does is perfectly just. If we look around in creation we would we would deduct that God is artistic and that we 're made in His image, and we like to create things that would reflect to us that God himself is artistic. maybe you 've like me standing at the kitchen sink last night, looked out the window, and there the sun was setting, and because of the humidity and Whatever was in the sky behind the trees, it was like a beautifully painted picture. And God is constantly painting pictures in creation of sheer beauty. He's a lover of beauty. He's pure. There's nothing impure in him, the Bible says. He's righteous. He's right in everything he does. The Bible describes him as being gentle. It gives us pictures like him being a mother hen who wants to gather chicks under her wing. He's slow to anger and patient, the Bible says. Romans said He's, he's all-surpassing power. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's ruling over everything. Nothing happens in our lives or in the world that first doesn't pass through and He just at least lets it go. He's omnipresent. The psalmist said, where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. Wherever I am, He He deducted your hand is there and you will guide me omnipresent everywhere. Servant minded. He came among us as one to serve us. He wants to serve us. He's wrathful. He will get angry. He will punish us. He's untrickable. The Bible says he cannot be mocked or tricked. He sees everything. He exists in spirit form, the Bible tells us. So we must relate to him or worship him in spirit and only in truth because he's encompassed in truth. That's all he is. He's faithful to his word. He will never go against what he says. We can learn all these things about God. He is, to whatever degree he wants to reveal himself to us, knowable by us. It's a part of what he created us for. Another question we had had to do with the jealousy of God. The Bible mentions in six different locations, that God is a jealous God. And I think there's a question about this, because when we think of jealousy, we, we, th- we think of sin. We think of being jealous about something as a, as a sinful response we have, something that is not of God. But the Bible says that God is jealous. And every time it mentions the jealousy of God, it's given with instructions to you and I or to his people to not do something. God is a jealous God. Therefore, it would say, Exodus 34, do not worship any other God before him. In other places, it says, do not stray to other nations, for your God is a jealous God in the Old Testament. Don't give your allegiance. Here's what I think it's saying. God is jealous for our allegiance to him because in his love, he knows that's what's best for us. His jealousy flows out of his love, and it's a longing for us to stay with him as the first priority in our lives. I think there's a healthy jealousy sometimes in human relationships. If my, well, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend, and we had, you know, there's somewhat of a, when you have a girlfriend, there's somewhat of a like, you know, you I'm with you, you're with me. And so when she came to me and said, I know, Tim, you're two years younger, and this is my last chance as a senior to go to prom, So, and I had another senior guy ask me, so what I'd like to do is go to prom with him, but I still want to be your girlfriend. Well, I think I had like a legitimate jealousy (laughs) of that time. Right? I want my wife to see me as her lover, her husband, in a sense her best friend. But let's just say, now she's never done this, let's just say she meets some really handsome guy and she starts giving her attention to him. And she starts interacting with him more than me. I would think I would have a righteous jealousy of what was happening there. Now closely tied to God's jealousy will come his anger. And I would think if my wife... You know, if that relationship went too far, I would have an anger, a righteous anger that would be stirred. This is a part of us being made in the image of God. I think that's what it means that he's a jealous God. He he longs for us to give our full allegiance first and foremost to him. Now, the next two questions about the character of God, when you see all of those things that have been revealed, and there's so many more we can learn about God, there's two questions that came that just started rattling around in my brain that I really appreciated. Question three and four. First one is this. Does God have a sense of humor? Great question. For many years, I struggled with this question myself. Spirituality in church seems so serious. And so it should be. We understand from reading the Bible, it's a life or death, eternal matter. Living God's ways have a huge effect on how our lives work and pain and hurt in the world. Very serious. So, does God have a sense of humor? And then this question. I know that humor is displayed by our teaching team all the time. Is this a sin? Does it miss what God intends? Is it a sin to have a sense of humor since we never hear of God or Jesus having one? Okay, that's, they're assuming, when we don't very often, hear of God or Jesus having one. Do you ever have this question? I mean, in some homes, we don't talk about religion because it's serious and it's conflicting. In many churches, to misbehave is to get the Get the gong. I mean, I know the church I grew up in. I was coached as a child. What was appropriate in the church setting. And goofing around and doing a funny. I mean, that wasn't a part of what was appropriate. You were supposed to sit upright. Pay attention. Don't fall asleep. That's hard sometimes for a kid. It was serious. I remember the first time I was in the church building after hours. My folks were at a Bible study, and so we got to stay there, a friend and I and my brother. And I had what was called a puddle jumper. It's a little stick with a propeller on the end, and if you spin it, it'll fly off like a little helicopter. And I went in the sanctuary where it's supposed to be so serious and somber, and I started flying that puddle jumper up to the ceiling. And there was a real part of me that wondered, was God going to punish me for having fun in his house? I didn't want any adults to know. It didn't help matters when I went to my friend's church, which was even more formal than our church, And we were going through the service and we'd done all these different things in the service and then it was time for communion they passed communion around and they'd given so many rules about communion, I was so nervous, I didn't know. And and I took one of the wafers and my friend leaned over to me and he said, when you put that in your mouth, he said, don't chew it. I said, why? You don't chew, he said, the body of Christ. Well, the last thing I was going to do is chew that wafer. So I remember absorbing that wafer in my mouth. One Christmas, we bought my dad a Christmas tie. Frosty the Snowman had Frosty right there. And at the bottom of the tie had a little button you could push. And that button then played out in a very high pitch Frosty the Snowman. Well, just to honor his children, my dad decided to wear that tie to church that night, Christmas Eve. And kids will be kids, and they're going through the service, and again it comes time for communion. And they're setting up communion up front. The music has stopped. It's dead silent. And I don't know which kid it was. But they reached over and they pinched that little button on my dad's tie. And echoing through this cathedral like church was Frosty the Snowman preparing people for communion. Our pew got to laughing so hard. And I got to be real honest with you. I felt like it was really wrong. I wondered if someone was going to ask us to leave. I had no sense that God himself might be laughing with us. I had no sense. Does God have a sense of humor? Solomon wrote this. There's a time for everything. A season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to weep. And there's a time to laugh. We haven't always directly answered these questions, but I'm going to try to directly answer this with my opinion. My opinion. I'm going to give you my rationale. I think God is humorous. I've come to believe that he's the most humorous being in all of creation. The Bible says, Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, 5, 6, The one enthroned in heaven sits there and laughs. Part of our reward for eternity, Jesus said, or for those who weep now, blessed are you, because you will laugh. I think God is humorous because laughter really is intrinsically good for us. And anything that's good for us comes from God, the Bible tells us. James said, Everything good we have comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Science is proving what Solomon said. A cheerful heart or a joyful heart is good medicine. Do you know that when people laugh, the human growth hormone production in them goes up, in some cases, almost 70% of what it is normally. The human growth hormone is also known as the youth hormone. It keeps us young, even physically. And so laughter has an anti-aging effect on us. It increases the natural killer cells in our body. So la- laughter strengthens our immune system. Don't you love it when you meet a person well-advanced in years who's got a real sense of humor and they've learned how to deal with the challenges of life with laughter? just heard about a grandmother who was Hundred years old. She went to the hospital. She was having some pains. So she got things checked out and she went in there. And before she was done, her daughter called her. So, what are they finding out, Mom? Grandma said, Well, we don't know yet, but they've ruled out pregnancy. If you've ever watched the show... Now, I'm going to date myself a little. MASH. It's a beautiful example. Pierce and Honeycutt. In the stress of war. Using humor to cope. And helping the whole community cope because of their humor. Laughter lowers the stress hormones in our body. Laughter is good for us, and so that's one reason I think it's from God. Secondly, I think God is humorous is because every so often he'll just do something that makes you laugh. You ever had that experience? We're talking about this with the worship team before the first hour. And I said, we had a, you know this question. Someone's asked if humor is sinful or if God is humorous. And he started laughing right away. He said, Have you ever looked at an aardvark? Or a duck-billed platypus? We had a mama cat on our farm. First litter ever. Cats have, I think, eight nipples. She had eight babies. These babies would bounce around in there. I can't tell you how many... People came into the barn and just watched them pounce on each other. And you know how little baby kitties play? And just laughed. Something in creation. You go to a zoo with a child and they see a giraffe. God just does some things to bring a smile to our face. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 16, 17, we read a story about a man named Abraham. And God had told Abraham he was going to be the father of many nations. He was going to have descendants as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But yet Abraham was getting near 100 years old, Excuse me, and he'd had no children. So he was getting nervous, and his wife Sarah was getting nervous, so they actually tried to have a baby through a maidservant, and that wasn't right before God. And one day they were camping, and Sarah was in a tent, And Abraham was outside, and three men came to them. We know uh, from reading the whole story that these three men are somehow the incarnation of God, or angels. It says God was speaking to them. And God asked Abraham, where's your wife? He said, well, she's in the tent. And Abraham said, you know, can I help you? And they were hosting them, and pretty soon God said to them, by this time next year, I'm going to visit you. And your wife will have borne you a child. And the Bible says, being 99 years old, Abraham laughed. And Sarah laughed internally in the tent. God said to Abraham, Why is Sarah laughing? Sarah lied. I'm not laughing. And then God said to them, is anything too hard for the Lord? One year later, Sarah would say this, Genesis 21. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Then she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. The writer of Hebrews, just with a little satire, said, Abraham was given a son when he was as good as dead. They named him Isaac, which means laughter. Has God ever done anything in your life that's so preposterous that you just have to laugh? He's done numerous things for me. And I look back on him and I just laugh. When my wife and I were dating and I invited her to marry me, I was living in a the nicest word I can think of is a musty old basement. And I was not feeling the greatest about bringing my new bride into the musty old basement. And of course, I really didn't make any money in the ministry I was in. But we got food and we got that shelter. And we went on our honeymoon together and All we could afford was a tent, and it rained so much on the honeymoon. I mean, it was somewhat funny, but it wasn't that funny. (laughs) It would rain so much, we had to check into a hotel and spend some of the money we did have, and we, of course, couldn't afford a very good hotel, so this was musty at best as well. And then when we got back to the ministry I worked with, the camp setting, the camp director called us in his office And he said, you know, something happened while you were gone. The city came and rezoned one of our homes on the camp property. And they made it a single family dwelling. And now that you're married, you're the only family we have on staff. So we were wondering if you wanted to move into this home. I didn't know then, but actually people who attend our church family here own the home. And I said, well, sounds good. (laughs) And my wife and I moved into, this is when God does something that just makes you laugh. I was there two weeks ago to this camp. And the home beside it right now is selling for $1.7 million. This home is worth well in excess of a million dollars. And my wife and I got to live there for two years. Just makes me laugh. Now God, he says, Without faith you cannot please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he rewards those who seek him. Who knows how he rewards us? But I have no doubt that God was saying to me then, It's okay, Tim. Just keep trusting me. And maybe you can even laugh. He does things sometimes that just make us laugh. Abraham is our father. And it didn't start till he was a 100. I think God is humorous because laughter is good for us. He does things that make us laugh. And he uses humor to teach us. He's actually got a real wit to him and a cutting edge. I really never paid attention to this until a number of years ago when I read a book by Elton Trueblood called The Humor of Christ. And when you look at Christ's teaching from a humorous point of view, you see it many places. Matthew chapter 6, he goes on about not worrying and such. And then he ends it with kind of a humorous punch and irony. He says, why would you borrow trouble from tomorrow? Why worry about tomorrow when today has enough trouble of its own? And in using a little wit... He communicates things. Great communicators know how to, my mom loved the sound of music. One of the songs in the sound of music, I believe it's in the sound of music. She would sing it all the time. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. One time I was with my wife at a conference and there was a funny speaker, but boy, he packed a punch. And so I went to him after and said, you're so good with humor. I said, why do you use so much humor? He said, it's like an anesthetic. When people are laughing, you can get the IV in. <laughs> Jesus does this. Think of him with some carpenters and a carpenter's whining about his boss. Jesus knows all about this carpenter. He knows that he's not being faithful to his wife or that he's whatever. And the carpenter's whining away and so Jesus wants to shape him up a little. Maybe he'd just use a little wit and say, why do you worry about the speck of sawdust in your boss's eye? And you're not thinking about the 2 by four. In your own. There's a little humor there. Do you see the buddies around him laughing? They know. Jesus mocked the Pharisees. If you were around the Pharisees and you saw their religious tenure and all their prompt circumstance and everything they did, and Jesus would just jab them. You Pharisees, think of, do you think people would chuckle a little under their breath when he said to the Pharisees, You Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all clean on the outside. But inside, really, you're spiritually dead. He was making a point, but he cushioned it with a picture that was kind of humorous. There's all kinds of wit and irony in Christ's teaching Solomon used it exaggeration it's better to live on a corner of a roof he's making a point it's better to live in the attic than with a most of you know it nagging wife funny. It makes you chuckle a little. Unless you're that guy or that girl, which we all are sometimes. The sluggard, Solomon said, when it's time to work, says, there's a lion outside. We can't go out there. It's humor. Elton Trueblood says, We ought to consider ourselves as the Pharisees. Except they reacted wrong to Christ's mocking. I've been thinking about something about our culture. We don't like humor and mocking. Maybe we should grow up a little. And be able to tease each other. And poke at each other. And laugh about it a little more. Instead of trying to act like we're all just doing right and it's appropriate and don't tell me what to do. When I went into counseling in college, every lecture was started with the same theme. I would say, of all the things you learn here, there's three things I want you to know for sure. The first thing is this. This is people who are struggling with mental illness, stuff you can't imagine. I'm there with depression, acute anxiety. People are concerned. They're emotionally hurting. They're in pain. And he would say, three things I want you to know. First of all, I want you to know this. You're far worse than you think you are. You're worse than you think. You're worse than you even know. Second of all, God wants you to know this as well. The whole world and everything in it is far more messed up than you can even imagine. It's true. Sin has corrupted everything. And then he'd say this, third thing. Forgot what it was. If you now move in faith in what's right, God will bless your efforts. He'll do something with it. So keep moving and keep working. And then his final thing was this knowing that you're worse than you thought, the world is worse than you thought, but God is going to care for you along the way. He would always slide this in. So then, lighten up a little. This was all the people in the mental hospital. Lighten up a little. Do you know why the Pharisees never made it with, eventually killed Christ? They couldn't laugh at themselves. He poked at them, pride. He mocked them. They never laughed about it. They never could see the truth in how messed up they were and laugh about it and say, I need God's mercy. But that's true of all of us. We're like the Pharisees. And when Jesus says something to them, he's saying it to us. And we ought to learn and laugh and say, you're right. I am totally messed up. Would you help me? Would you save me? And then we can laugh in his promises, if we're confident, that he will be faithful, that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And we can know the joy. Why does God sit in heaven and laugh? It says because he sees the evil games, and he knows what the evil are doing, but he knows the end. And so at times the pride and the arrogance of man just make him laugh. We could maybe laugh with him by faith the deeper we get into the assurance of his promises in our life. I hope you'll agree with me that maybe God has a sense of humor and we could all use a little bit more of it in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these questions. And I thank you for leading me on this journey uh, to know more of your joy and maybe more of some of what's at the heart of you and how you use and created humor and wit. Help us see this more clearly, that we could have more joy this side of heaven. And when we're in those times of weeping and hurting and heartache, help us remember the promise that you have said when we're your people. In due time, we will laugh. In Jesus' name, amen.